Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's Easter Sunday podcast for Sunday, April 17th, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to us today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So have you ever had a song stuck in your head or a portion of a song stuck in your head, then congratulations, you have uh, been a host to an earworm. In a uh, TED-Ed video by Elizabeth Helmuth Margulies on earworms, I learned that we don't know why as humans that uh, we're susceptible to earworms. One of the uh, triggering keys, they think, is uh, repetition, right? When you listen to a song or part of a song over and over and over and over again, sometimes it gets stuck somewhere in your brain. Now, is this a new phenomenon? Hardly. Uh, in an article on earworms uh, on the Kennedy, Senators, uh, Kennedy Center's website, they noted that uh, over 100 years ago, uh, Germans coined the term orworm. Are you familiar with that, Inga? Orworm, as she says, yes. Uh, meaning earworm, to describe that experience of a song getting stuck in the brain. Scientists call it other names like stuck tune syndrome and musical imagery rep repetition. Well, Elizabeth Margulies mentioned a uh, 1876 short story by Mark Twain entitled A Literary Nightmare in which an entire town gets taken over by a sinister jingle. 1876! Right? Earworms are nothing new. They have been around for a while. Long before, uh, it's a world of laughter, a world of tears. Tear. Anyway, uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, small world after all. Or, who lives in a pineapple under the sea? Yeah, yeah. If you don't know that song, you should Google it. You'll be singing it for 12 years once you hear it once. Or... Uh, the new contemporary, Pastor John, have you started uh, singing this with Baby Julian? Baby shark, do, 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 baby shark, do, 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 do. I mean, that's another song that will just keep going and going in your head. Or if you're an Encanto fan, we don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. Another fabulous earworm. Now, I started today's sermon uh, with these four songs because in case nothing else sticks with you today, these songs will stick with you today. You'll walk away with at least something uh, from Easter worship. Well, in actuality, our, our scripture reading for today that Roman did an amazing job on this morning might actually be a first century earworm. Okay, well, maybe not to the same level as Baby Shark, but uh, it's definitely a hymn. It's called the Christ Hymn, lyrics to the, the song that the early church knew and evidently used in worship. One, came, one commentator called it a hymnic confession of faith. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the church in Colossae, added it to the introductory uh, chapter of his letter. And he used this hymn as the basis of reminding the early church about the supremacy of Christ above all things. On this Easter Sunday of 2022, we're wrapping up a series entitled Before All Things, and we've been taking a deep dive into two chapters from Paul's letter uh, of 2 Corinthians, uh, specifically chapters 8 and 9, chapters that were focused on the topics of generosity and stewardship. 
You see, Paul helped launch numerous churches uh, in the Mediterranean in the first century AD, and including the church in Corinth, a city in southern Greece. Well, in an effort to help bridge the growing gap between the Jewish believers of Jesus that had grown up out of Judaism and saw and knew Jesus and witnessed to him as the Lord and the Savior, um, connected, though, with the non-Jewish or the Gentile believers uh, from all over the world that's starting to come to believe in Christ as well. And so Paul, wanting to bridge this gap, organized this massive collection had to be taken uh, on behalf of the Gentile churches for the poor in Jerusalem. And a number of churches had contributed generously and freely, uh, but the church in Corinth, after a rough patch in their relationship with Paul, actually stopped their collection. And Paul knew that this was bigger than just him, like bigger than his own ego. And so he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, uh, letting them know what it means to put Christ first before all things, including their finances, right? Because generosity and stewardship are ultimately spiritual issues. And Paul knew that the church in, in Corinth was hurting in that department. And so today we are looking at another letter uh, to, the, to the church in Colossae. And we hear these words again from Paul so that we might renew our commitment to the resurrected Lord on this Easter. Nijay Gupta, in his Smith and Helwey's commentary on Colossians, calls the passage that we just had read the allness passage about Jesus, the allness. He says, Christ is first in rank above all, verse 15. He created all, verse 16. He is before all, verse 17. He is the sovereign over the whole church, beginning of verse 18. He is the victor over death itself, which is the enemy above all, the second half of 18. And he is reconciler of all. So that's where we're heading today in these five or six short verses as we look at the allness of Jesus. That's why many scholars refer to these verses as testifying to the supremacy of Christ. Now, before we dive in, though, I, I want to offer a word of caution. Now, some of us have been connected to the church not necessarily this church, but the Church Universal for many, many years. We've come to countless Easter Sunday services. We've heard countless Easter Sunday sermons. Some of us have given countless Easter Sunday sermons. Uh, and it's easy to think that we've been there and heard that when it comes to knowing the basics about Jesus. The other day I was listening to Apple Music and a song came up that I hadn't heard before. It's entitled, Wouldn't It Be Like You? by Brian and Katie Torwalt. Now, they're part of the prolific group, Jesus Culture. Anyway, it was the simplicity of this chorus that really caught me off guard and reminded me I don't necessarily know everything there is to know about Jesus. It said this, And wouldn't it be like you to be different than we thought, different than we want, but better? You're better. Let that sink in for a moment. Wouldn't it be like you, Jesus, to be different than we thought, to be different than we want, but better. For just about the entirety of Jesus' ministry, he was constantly surprising people by what he said and what he did and, and what he prioritized in his life. He was different than what the religious leaders thought he would be. He was different than even what his own disciples thought he should be. He was different than what the tax collectors and sinners and those on the outside of polite society thought he would be. And wouldn't it be like you, Jesus, 
to be different than we thought, different than we want, but better. You're better. Even for those of us that have grown up in the church, I dare say Jesus is different than we thought, but he's so much better. So much better. Now, let's look at the details of this hymn to Christ Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Greek word for image is icon, uh, a word we're familiar with in English as well. And although it can mean uh, simply a literal image, like the image of the emperor on the coin, by itself it doesn't necessarily imply equality or complete likeness. I think Paul here is saying that Jesus is the means of revelation and representation. He is the way that the world has come to know who God is. Genesis 1 tells us that all human beings have been created in the image of God, but it was only when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago that humankind saw what God is truly like. Not by his appearance, but by how he lived his life, right? By his character and power, how he reached out with compassion to those in need. How he welcomed those who had been ostracized by society. How he worked to draw all people into the orbital grace of God. When the hymn says that Jesus is also firstborn of creation, we have to know that in Jewish culture, the firstborn male of a family received privilege status, especially being the primary heir to the family estate. And so Paul is lifting up Jesus' unique sonship to God. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we're reminded that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. It's John's way of saying that Jesus was there in the beginning with God. So as the firstborn of creation, Jesus' power and authority is above everything else that has ever been or will be created, as we'll see in the next verse, verse 16. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, we've already heard that Jesus was in the beginning there when, when all things were created, and John said that all things came into being through him as well. Interesting side note, uh, when the hymn mentions things visible or invisible, uh, Andrew T. Lincoln in his New Testament, uh, New Interpreter's Bible Commentary on Colossians mentions that this language about the cosmic powers can be traced back to the Jewish belief in angelic beings. Each of the four representative names here, thrones, dominions, rulers, and powers, they're mentioned in the non-canonical book of 2 Enoch, chapters 20 to 22, where it sets the rank uh, in the seventh heaven of angels. And uh, each set of angels has a different hierarchy. And uh, Paul here and this hymn is saying that Jesus is above all of them. That Jesus is more powerful than any entity, good or evil, that there is in this universe. And so when we are in need of any help, right, any encouragement, any strength, Christ is more than able. Verse 17. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
This is where we get the title from the series, of course, that Jesus is before all things. It's also where the second stanza of the hymn kicks in as we start to hear about Jesus as Savior. In the ancient world, and far too often today, one achieved a high position or rank uh, usually through conquest or other displays of power. The Roman Empire, when it was at its peak, it encompassed between one-sixth and one-fourth of the entire population of the world just within their reaches. It stretched across Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. Rome was known for crushing anyone and anything that stood in their way. And they said they were bringing the peace of Rome. Jesus took a much different approach to power and authority. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, there's a lot going on in verse 18. But for starters, Jesus is the head of the body. And the head isn't just a part of the body. It's the place that the body gets its direction and power. It's the central processing unit, uh, if you will, right? Now, the hymn is referring to, of course, the, the body of the church. And some people outside the faith have said, you know, I like Jesus, I just don't like the church. And I get that, right? I know that over the ages as the church, universal, we have been at times self-serving, vindictive, divisive, territorial. We have not represented Jesus in ways that honored him. But that doesn't negate the fact that when Christ is the head of the church, it's our job to come in alignment with what the head is calling us to do. It's not about us and our preferences, what we like, what we feel like, what we want out of a church. No, it's about what Jesus as the head is calling us to do and be. At Palmdale UMC, we say we are inspired by Jesus to love. That is our core belief. It's what drives everything that we do. And more than anything else, we want to be a congregation that is known by the way they love, that, that we would love like Jesus loves. That's how we try to follow our head. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, we have that word firstborn once again, but this time it's referring to the Easter story and how today we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran pastor who was hanged by the Nazi regime during World War II, once said this, a community of the cross exists only through the Easter message. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death is revealed as the death of death itself. And with this, the boundary marked by death is abolished. This from the man who would soon be killed for living out his faith as he stood up to the tyranny of Adolf Hitler. Death itself had been defeated by the power of Christ at Easter. Bonhoeffer knew that because of this amazing gift, believers move from life to life, no matter what challenges, struggles, and tragedies may come their way. Verse 18 finishes with this challenging statement, that he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. 
Now, by using this ancient Christian hymn, Paul has been laying out the case for the supremacy of Christ, right? He is the image of the God Almighty. All things were created through him in the beginning. He is before all things. All things hold together in him. He is the head of the church, and that all may have eternal life through him. The only question left is, does he really have first place in everything for us? Our Lenten series has been focusing on generosity and stewardship, and we've been uh, taking a deep dive into the story of Paul and the Corinthian church and that offering for the poor in Jerusalem. But what about our finances? Does Jesus come before that? Do we give Christ authority in that area? Are we willing to release the resources that God has blessed us with in order that others may be blessed by God as well? Or are we holding on tightly? Do we have a scarcity mentality, believing that we have to keep as much as we can for ourselves? Or can we trust God to provide that when we open our hands and we release our resources, that God will continue to give us what we need? There is so much freedom and joy that comes when we trust Christ as the Lord of our finances. Or what about our time, right? Are we open to to letting Christ be Lord of how we spend the 24 hours that each of us has been given each and every day? Are we willing to get involved in some of the things that God is passionate about? Helping the poor, the sick, the lonely. Can we find ways to volunteer to help our children and our youth grow up knowing that they are valued and loved and they have a place and a purpose and a passion in this life? Might we able to help work to end human trafficking, something that our church is very passionate about. In fact, if you want to call the office, we can help you get connected with our social justice team, and you can be part of that life-changing ministry. But how do we, the way, how does the way we spend our time reflect what we believe in our hearts about God? And make no mistake, it doesn't happen to happen only at church right? It can be anywhere in any way. However we are giving ourselves away to others in love, that honors God and the sacrifice of Jesus. Or what about our relationships? Is Jesus above our relationships? Does he have the first place in our relationships? Meaning, do we allow his spirit to fill us and to shape our interactions, right? When, when struggles and challenges and misunderstandings arise, and they always do, even in the best of relationships, do we look to Christ to help bring healing, especially among the, lo- the ones we love the most? Are our words and actions towards those we, love, those we love filled with the grace that God has given us? What about to our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, the people that cut in front of us on the road when we're driving to work? How are our relationships, our lives filled with Christ being first? Now, why does this matter, right? What difference does it make if Christ is supreme in our lives or not? Well, it all comes down, Paul says, to the final stanza of this hymn, the final two verses of our passage, verses 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. So it's all ultimately about reconciliation, right? A a coming together of every single thing in the universe. The kingdom of God and Jesus' Easter resurrection is ultimately about reconciliation and peace. 
Or if you want a more contemporary uh, rendering, I love how the Message Bible translates these two verses. It says this. Oops, I guess I don't have it printed. I will read it to you. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper, proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, they get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured out down from the cross. So great. I love those words. All the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. That is the gift of Easter, friends. That is what the kingdom of God is all about. That is why Jesus is before all things. That which was hostile and an enemy can be and will be reconciled. The gift of the cross, the sacrificial love of Jesus that bled for us, has made it so. Dr. Frank Rogers, Jr. is a professor at the School of Theology at Claremont. And although I didn't attend... Claremont Seminary myself, I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Rogers speak a few years ago at a bishop's convocation. His book, Compassion and Practice, The Way of Jesus, is a tremendous read. It's one of those that's uh, a mix of theology and life-changing, powerful stories. And in it, he tells a story that I heard him tell uh, in person at the bishop's convocation. And I've been waiting for the right time to share it with you. I've been holding on to this story for almost three years. And Colossians 1, 19 to 20, is that occasion. Frank says that the year after he and his wife got divorced, he bought a dog for he and his son, Justin. Justin was three years old at the time. Misty was a husky and an amazing dog who loved them deeply. Frank was a runner. And uh, he would frequently run up in the hills of the San Gabriel Mountains, just above the seminary where he taught. And Misty would run with him. In fact, she loved running with him. And he would release her off the leash when they got a little bit up on the trailway. And then she would just bound around with such joy and energy and freedom. He said it was like poetry in motion. Well, fast forward to the spring of Justin's first year of college. Misty started to get sick. They discovered that she had cancer that had metastasized. She couldn't even get into the car to go running anymore. So in the spring, at spring break, Justin flew home, knowing that Misty was nearing the end of her life. And so the two of them, father and son, took Misty to the vet. And they were with her as she took her last breaths. And they celebrated her life and the love and the joy that she shared with them. And yes, many tears were shed as well. After they received her ashes, they knew that uh, they had to spread a portion of them up in the hills where Frank used to run. Now, the only problem was time. Because Justin was only there for a short amount of time. And he needed to get back to LAX to fly out at noon on Saturday, the day after uh, they received the ashes. 
Well, Frank woke up early that Saturday morning and he decided that he was going to go and scatter Misty's ashes while he took a, a quick morning run. And so he drove up to the trailhead parking area in order to get out and then just go ways onto the trail and scatter Misty's ashes, but there were already tons of cars there. I mean, not only was the parking lot full, there was like 20 cars that were lined up waiting for a space to open up. Well, with time being so crucial, he knew that there was a small dirt parking lot just past the main parking lot, and so he passed the 20 cars that were waiting for a spot in order to get to the uh, super secret spot up above. Well, it wasn't that super secret, because not only was that parking lot full, there were 12 cars waiting to get into the super secret parking lot, uh, and pe cars were starting to turn around. So Frank decided, oh, he didn't have time for this, so he turned around, but now he's starting to get blocked in on the small road, right, as people are coming and going. And he suddenly looked off to the side, and he saw uh, on an adjacent cul-de-sac, there was one parking spot open right on the corner, on the house on the corner. And so he whipped in, he parked quickly, he parked directly below a sign that said, no parking before 7 a.m. Panicked, he looked at his watch, whew, 7.30, he's golden. As he got out of the car, he said, holding his water bottle in one and, and Misty's urn in the other, a man comes running out of the house that they parked in front of. He was a large, grisly man of Middle Eastern descent, uh, said Frank. He had a leaf rake in one hand and a steel rake in the other, and he was mad. In fact, he was practically screaming at Frank. What are you doing? You're parking right in front of my house! Now, Frank, seminary professor, right, devoted follower of Jesus. His class that he was teaching that semester was called The Compassion Project. He started yelling back. What do you mean? I'm not doing anything wrong. Can't you see the sign? It's 7.30. Come on, get off my back. You're right in front of my house, says the man, yelling louder, jabbing with his rake. My bushes, my lawn, my property. Ugh, but I'm on the street, says Frank. It's totally legal to park here. I'm not touching your property at all. The man scowled. Frank said it looked as though he wanted to spit, cuss, and take a swing at him with both rakes, but he knew better. So you're not going to help me then, are you? Fine. The hell with you, he said. The hell with all of you. And he turned around and stormed back into his house. And the whole encounter, Frank said, just lasted a few seconds. His heart was racing. His stomach felt sick. <laughs> what just happened? He was trying to process it all. Fear of assault, shame at how defensive he got, indignation at the man's manner, and, and this desperate desire to flee the scene all started boiling up within him at once. He didn't know what to do. So to buy time, he decided to get back into his car and try to calm himself down. Time was slipping by. He had to get into the hills to scatter Misty's ashes and then get back to pick up Justin and get him to the airport for a noon flight. And yet, it just didn't feel right, right? He couldn't just leave because then he would be uh, given in to a bully. But he also couldn't just stay uh, after hearing how upset the man was. So he decided to save some dignity by going up to the house and inform the owner, okay, I'm going to move, but you didn't have to be so rude to me, right? 
right? Just so that I hear what you're saying, I don't think it's fair, but I'm going to do it anyway. When he knocked on the door, he was greeted with the same angry venom that he had received earlier. What? What are you still doing here? Can't you leave us alone, the man said. Sir, sir, I, I'm just here to tell you that I'm, I'm going to move my car. Nobody cares who lives here. They're always parking their cars outside. It's horrible. Yes, yes, sir, I know, I understand. I'm just here to tell you that I'm going to move my car. I heard what you said to me. Nobody ever listens to what I say. They just park here all day and day night. Sir, sir, I'm trying to tell you I am going to move my car. I, I was just trying to find a place to park so that I could scatter the ashes of our dog, my son's dog. He died, and we used to run up in the hills. Wait, wait, wait. Your dog? Yeah, yeah, she died recently. Her name was Misty. She was my son's dog since he was three. Oh, I had a dog that died once too, he said. Well, Frank said, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, would you like to hear how she died? No, not really. I'm kind of pressed for time here. Well, we're not from here, he said. We're from Iraq, Baghdad. We were there when all of the bombing started a few years ago. Sometimes, he said, the people, they, they park their cars in front of our apartment. And then one day, the car just explodes right in front of our house. Not 20 minutes before, my little girl, six years old, is playing in the very spot in front of my house. Car drives up, parks in that same location. Our dog had gone out to investigate. The bomb explodes. 20 minutes earlier, it would have been my daughter. So, we moved to America. He says, it's been so hard on my daughter. She can't sleep. She has nightmares. She wakes up screaming every night. Each morning she looks out. There's cars parked in front of our house. Can't you make it go away, Daddy? Can't, can't you stop having the cars parked in front of my house? But what can I do, he says. What can a father do? And Frank says, suddenly I was finally aware of this human being that was standing before me. And I sensed some of his pain and the suffering that had shaped him. The parking of my car no longer mattered. However, that moment on the porch, that mattered, right? Two dads bearing the sorrow of their children, trying to find some peace and reconciliation in a world of violence and loss. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. It's Easter Sunday, friends, and in some ways, this day is just like any other day. But in other ways, the 
power of this day, the reality that in love God raised Jesus from the dead, conquering it once and for all, the fact that Jesus is before all things and he is working to reconcile all things by making peace, that, friends, changes everything. So where are you hurting today? Where are you struggling or frustrated? Where are you overwhelmed? Where has it seemed that life has just beaten and battered you down? I mean, these past two years of the pandemic have been hard on all of us, no joke. Depression, loneliness, sadness, mental health, they're at all-time lows right now across the board. Where do you need reconciliation and peace? Give it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus. Remember the singers, Brian and Katie Torwalt, and their song, Wouldn't It Be Like You? And wouldn't it be like you to be different than we thought, different than we want, but better? You're better? At the very end of their song, they sing this. Hold on. Don't grow tired. Don't give up. He's better. He's better. Hold on. Don't grow tired. Don't give up. He's better. And maybe for some of us here today, uh, whether we're here in person or watching online, maybe this is the most important message we need to hear. Hold on. Don't grow tired. Don't give up. He's better. Okay, so maybe Colossians 1, 15 to 20 isn't exactly an earworm, but I dare say that if we keep reading it, if we keep singing it in our hearts, if maybe we write it down or print it out and we place it somewhere that we can see it on a regular basis, there's no telling how that might change us. My brothers and sisters in Christ, may the peace and reconciliation of Jesus give you whatever it is that you need most this day. And may the power of Easter fill your hearts and your souls. May the freedom that comes from putting Jesus before all things be yours now and for all time. Amen. <laughs>